they began to know the depths and heights and riches of his love, that love that passes human understanding. If it's just a law, why walk near to him? There's no joy in it. It's, it's miserable. Religion is terrible. But if it's a love relationship, and not something that's make-believe, but something that is real, to know that love becomes a powerful motivator in wanting to know that love in a greater way and to remove everything from our life that would hinder. Hey everybody, this is Brooks Popwell. I'm hoping that you might be listening today because the title of the podcast caught your eye. If so, it did for me too. I got it from an article I read recently that was written by our president, Steve Gallagher. What sex addicts and Pharisees have in common intrigued me since... I don't know how many of us would put those two kinds of people in the same category. So for today's show, Pastor Steve explains in greater depth why it is that struggling with sexual sin and being a self-righteous Pharisee often go together. And also, evangelist Glenn Meldrum, a longtime friend of Pure Life Ministries, balances things out by giving us a positive look at the authentic Christian life. He explores what it really means to be set apart to God. This is Purity for Life. Steve, I was fascinated by this article you wrote entitled, What Sex Addicts and Pharisees Have in Common. These are groups I don't often think about in the same sentence, but you gave a few reasons why they're similar. And before we talk about this idea more, in the opening, you said something that really caught my attention. It was about people like me that come from a church background, but you said if you talked to them in the church while they were struggling with sexual sin, and you said, turn to Christ as the answer, they'd probably only interpret that as an invitation to pursue modern formalism versus pursuing a vibrant life in God. Talk to me about the difference between these two things, formal religion and what you're calling a life in God. How do we get confused about the difference between these two? The predominant characteristic of Pharisees was that they were focused on outward things rather than the inward life. Jesus constantly focused on the heart, what's going on in a person's heart, what's the interchange um, between that person's inward life and God. God is a spirit being. He's a person. He's not a set of rules and regulations. Yes, there is the law that we must keep in regards to and in relation to that um, relationship we have with the Lord. But rules and regulations are not what Christianity are about. This Christian thing is all about our relationship with God. And when you are walking with the Lord, you are um, you're focused on Him. You're um, in constant communion with Him. He's real to you. That's so different than what I would say modern Phariseeism would be, which is just the 
American church thing of going to church, keeping some basic rules. We don't do this. We don't do that. We don't say those things. We're against these things. And, you know, just kind of adapting yourself to a church culture, that is completely different than really walking with God and having a vibrant relationship with him. I'm going to insert something here. I I was just reading this morning uh, one of those verses where Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and it's a common verse. I guess people probably know it. Can you just explain it? Because evidently Jesus thought this was what he should say to them to break them out of their delusion. He said, God desires mercy and not sacrifice. What was he getting at? Well, another one of the predominant characteristics of a Pharisee is that a Pharisee has a critical judging spirit. And what they do is they have their outward things they do, their their little rules they keep. And when other people don't keep those rules, their rules, then they judge them and they look down on them and they're critical of them. And they have, um, you know, Jesus said, you weigh people down, you know, and, and that's what he was talking about. You weigh them down with burdens and they're too cumbersome, too heavy to bear. And that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity should be full of joy and there should be life and liberty in it. But that's what the Pharisees did back then in their own way. And that's what Pharisees do today is when they're focused on certain outward laws and rules to keep, then they pick other people apart who don't keep those particular things that they deem as so important. Well, coming back now to the idea of sexual addicts being Pharisees, it's it's kind of a paradox in my mind. But you say one reason for that is that they're deceived because they're living a double life where they're pretending everything's okay and keeping sexual sin in secret. Now, I know when I came to Pure Life a few years ago, that fit me because I thought I'm a pretty good Christian, but I just have this small problem on the side. So let's pretend, I I don't think I talked to you directly in that time when I was there, but let's pretend I was talking to you at that point. What would you have said to me? Well, I know that I would have focused on the enormity of sin, the blackness of it, the evil nature of sin, and especially sexual sin, especially pornography, the pornography industry, all of it. It's black with Satan's touch. And that's probably, I probably would have came at it from that standpoint. So when you think about a Pharisee and you think about a sexual addict, let's just look at these two people uh, side by side. A Pharisee is walking in the flesh. He's not walking in the spirit. And so everything he's doing is coming from a carnal mindset. Jesus told the Pharisees that they are the blind leading the blind. And, you know, they were blinded by their own self-righteousness. And that's exactly really what you're talking about. I'm a pretty good guy. That's self-righteousness. That's different than the righteousness of God. A sex addict is deceived because sin always deceives. Every time a person sins, whatever the kind of sin it is, 
Every time a person sins, it works deception into his soul, and it makes him increasingly more blind to the reality of his spiritual condition. So you have two different kinds of people that you would think have nothing in common, but what they have in common is that they're walking in the flesh and they're deceived by their own lifestyles, and they are separating themselves from God. Wow. Well, I want to mention one more common factor that you touched on, and that was what you called powerless religion. I know so many people today in the church do feel powerless because they're trapped in sexual sin, and they know that, whether they're maybe open about it with others. How does someone get out of this kind of religion if they feel like Christianity, the way they've known it in their own lives, has not had any power to deliver them from their addiction? Well, let me take you to something that Paul said. Remember, Paul had once been Saul the Pharisee. And he knew what it meant to be a Pharisee, because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, his words. And he eventually came to the place in his life where the Lord was able to show him that in his weakness, God's power would be manifested. And that was completely the opposite of what Saul the Pharisee had lived in. He was strong in himself, in his ability to keep the law, in his ability to do all these outward things, in his ability to look righteous to other people. He was strong that way. And God had to break him and break him and break him and get him to the place of such um, weakness as a person that God's power could come through his life. That's the difference between powerful um, Christianity and powerless. And so, okay, a guy in sexual sin, it's the same kind of thing. He's strong in his self. His self-life, his carnal nature is strong and vibrant and in control. And that's got to be broken. And so it's through the process of God's breaking us down and weakening us that his power can come in and set us free from the hold of any kind of sin. If you want to read the original article, What Sex Addicts and Pharisees Have in Common, you can go to purelifeministries.org slash podcast, where you'll find a link to it located underneath this episode. One of the basic principles of biblical counseling is that God's word is profitable for reproof, but also for correction and instruction. In other words, every time God shows us what not to do, he'll also tell us the right way to live. And now that we've explored the problem of living in sexual sin and an empty life of outward religion, we need to look at the solution, a Christian life that's truly set apart to God. Evangelist Glenn Meldrum has been living this kind of life for decades, first as a pastor for many years, and now as an evangelist for over 20 years. He makes the biblical case for why the authentic Christian life is a life of true holiness and separation from the world, in a time when that message of truth is becoming less and less popular. I'm here to talk with Glenn Meldrum about the set-apart life, exploring how to be separate from an evil world and enter a relationship with God. It's really the concept the Bible calls holiness, 
and we may get into some of that a little later. Now, Glenn, let me ask you first, before we get into more of the details, why do you think it's important that this topic be discussed? Uh, Holiness, we could say separation, the set-apart life, like the title is there. How important is this topic in the Bible and in the Christian life? Well, I guess part of it is going to be just looking at the nature of God. And because God is holy, and holiness means that he's set apart, means that to be in fellowship with him, we need to be set apart. And so because of the nature of God, I think it becomes a very important issue. But the Word of God is very full in the thought of it in a host of ways. We can see it in ancient Israel where God called them to be a separate people. They were not to be like the pagans and worship the gods that they worshiped and to act in the way that they act. So it was supposed to be something totally different. And then when we look at Jesus, we see Jesus gathering around him these disciples and calling them to be separate and distinct from the world in the sense of how they lived, how they thought, how they talked. Uh, Everything about him was to be different. And the astounding thing with Jesus is he very boldly made himself the standard. So to be set apart is really to be Christ-like. And when we are Christ-like, we will be set apart. It's what comes out of that relationship with Jesus. And those who don't live like Jesus, those who are not Christ-like, will not be set apart from the world because they are immersed in the world. Those who become like Jesus will be separated from the world because that's what he was, and it'll be an, an aspect of their love for him that they are living such a life. Okay, when you mention this call from Jesus to be separate, I immediately think of the Pharisees. I heard one time that Pharisee even means literally someone who's set apart. But we know that Jesus also rebuked the Pharisees about how they got it wrong. So how is this call of Jesus to be separate different from what the Pharisees were trying to do? The Pharisees tried to be right with God through do's and don'ts. So they figured because they hold to particular rituals and commands that they were right with God as a result of it where they failed to understand that being right with God is all about relationship. And so people are so often, when they look at holiness, they'll label it as legalism. And legalism is something very different. Legalism is trying to be right with God through our own moral goodness. And that's what the Pharisees did. They tried to be right with God through their own moral goodness. So they were called separated people. They thought of themselves as separated people, but they were only separated in their own minds because of what they did outwardly, not because they were in relationship. Jesus has some of the most scathing attacks against the Pharisees, such as in Matthew 23, where he says, woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. He is blazing at them because they were so blind to what they were on the inside, they couldn't see that they weren't separated from the world. Because as religious people, they still had all the passions of the world, all the drives of the world, all the loves of the world, So they were like the world, just clothed in religious garb is all. And that can have a different expression, though it is very similar today. You can have a lukewarm church with lukewarm believers in it that think they're right because they prayed the sinner's prayer and they go to church once in a while. Today, now they think that uh, a good, faithful churchgoer, somebody who goes twice a month. And so they can think that they're just wonderful Christians, and yet they're at war with God because everything about their life is hostile. They are worldly in their concepts, in their ideas, in their philosophies, and what they do. 
And so they have not separated themselves from the world. And when you look at the world and you look at the majority of people that call themselves Christians, you really cannot see any difference in their life and their talk. And you get in then to the statistics of sin and sexual sins and all the other things that go on, you just see the reality that so much of the church is immersed in the world, defined by the world, loving the world. And that all proves that when we love the world, we are told that the love of the Father is not in us. And so it's a very serious issue that people are not really willing to investigate until their sin burns them so bad that they finally begin to say, what's going on? You mentioned how the church today often gets it wrong when it comes to what it means to live the Christian life. So maybe some people listening haven't heard this kind of message about true holiness a lot in their church. And if that's the case, what would you say that we're missing that's causing us to neglect what you've already said is such an important topic? Well, there's so many issues involved in that that it's really hard to narrow them down. You know, part of it is they have forsaken the Word of God, and they have come to the place where they're picking and choosing what they want to believe and not letting the Word of God just speak for itself. You have preachers out there that will only preach positive messages because they don't want to lose parishioners. They don't want the income to come down into the church. They're afraid to confront. And if you teach people, if you give them information, people sit there and be happy to take an information. But the moment you bring application, you are always confronting the people then. And confrontation today in our culture is something that people don't like. And so people leave churches because they are confronted over their sin. They're confronted over the issues. So pastors are almost afraid to confront. And by not confronting people, they are not confronting them about the sins that they're practicing and the things that they're committing that is contrary to God. And then unfortunately, you have a whole lot of pastors that have compromised themselves so much that you can't tell them from their parishioners or from the rest of the world as well. And when pastors and preachers aren't compromised, they are not going to preach a word that's going to bring conviction to their own life. They will actually avoid that issue or those issues because they don't want to have to deal with it themselves or look outwardly like they're a hypocrite. And so there's a lot of reasons why people are living in compromise and why they are being like the world. But The first is going to be that they are not embracing the Word of God. The second thing is, I think, is that they're not loving Jesus. Uh, When we love Jesus, we want to be near him. Anybody that we love, we want to be near, and we want to spend time with. The more we love a person, the more we want to be with that person. And when we love Jesus, we are going to want to be like him. And everything that is contrary to him, we will want out of our life. Everything that would break his heart would grieve the Holy Spirit. We want to remove. And so it's a love for God that compels us to want to be like him, and as a result of being like him, to be separate from the world. And so I think that uh, the aspect of people not loving Jesus is a huge issue in it. And what happens if we don't love Jesus? Well, the byproduct is we're loving the world. And when we love the world, whatever we truly love is what we will look like. And so those who love Jesus, truly love Jesus, begin to look like him. Those who love the world will look like the world. And it's just really that simple with it. I'm only a few years out of living a really worldly lifestyle. I mean, anybody who listens, regardless of where they may stand on this issue, uh, when they look at the life of somebody that comes to pure life, uh, it's pretty obvious this is a worldly life. It's a life that 
hopefully by anybody's definition, needs to change. Um, and, that, you know, that's one of the blessings, I guess, of when we have guys come here is they do know on some level they need to change. Unfortunately, I have found uh, – I still, of course, live here and hear the preaching all the time – that I'm at a loss sometimes to know how to respond. Um, you mentioned the aspect of conviction and of also application. How is it people typically respond as a default to this conviction and this this message, this calling for an application – and how should we respond? How do we take that confrontation and process it and realize that it's for us? Well, I guess we have to see that probably the most loving message in Scripture, and this would not be a popular thought, but it is true nonetheless, the most loving message in Scripture is repent. God loves us enough to confront us. And that is just, if we, if we take the time to understand that, it should overwhelm us, that God would love us enough to get involved in our lives, to reprove us. And why does he do it? Because he wants us. And to me, that's just astounding, that he wants us. Our sin separates from him. And so he reproves us so that we can get right with him. It's all about reconciliation, him reconciling us to himself. That's what the cross is about, and that's what the Holy Spirit does in calling us to the place of repentance. So every time that Jesus rebukes us, reproves us, and it comes through preaching and a host of other ways, but We'll just look at preaching here for a moment. When it comes to the Word of God being preached to us, uh, we have the responsibility then to respond to it. And we will respond to it. Every person that hears the Word of God truly preached will give a response to it. They will either submit or they will rebel. There's no in-between. They will either say, yes, Lord, I agree, or they will rebel and reject it. Those who are going to respond correctly It begins with repentance. And basically what repentance is, is going to God saying, you are right, I'm wrong. Forgive me, change me. And in the process of asking God for forgiveness, there is the effort to begin to turn. Now, when we first become Christians, there should be a radical change in our life. All right, that begins there. We are not what we once were. We are being changed. That is part of being separated from the world. So this change is radical. But the idea of sanctification or being set apart for holy use is also a progressive thing. It's instantaneous in that it happens the moment we are saved, but is progressive in that it is a continuing work that he does as we continue to press in to know him. And so I wish that I could say that there was a time where it was finished and we repented and never had another issue in our life again. But God is is dealing with us in a deeper way and It's kind of like an onion. I know people have used that illustration so many times, but when we first come to Christ, the outward is just being dealt with. And and as we keep maturing, he's getting deeper and deeper and deeper. He's going from the outward sins to the inward sins of the heart, to the motives and what's on the inside of us. And so with that continual dealing of the deeper things in our life, there should be expressions of that in deeper devotion and in walking nearer to him. So that the separated life is not something that becomes this hard thing we're fighting just try and do, but it becomes the natural outflowing of our relationship with God. Because we love him and we are growing in him and those outer layers of sin are falling off and he's dealing more and more with the inward things. And as those fall away, it just becomes a greater joy to serve him. That's why John went and said in his epistle that it is not a burden to obey his commands. 
While we're on the subject of the church, I know you pastored for quite a number of years, and so these same obstacles are something that aren't just theory for you, that you observed these things firsthand, uh, and it wasn't just when you went into a church to do a service as an evangelist. You know, before that, you were you were pastoring week after week, so you got to see the obstacles firsthand that, that were there to this topic of the set-apart life. What do you remember from that experience along this line? Well, I pastored altogether about 17 years, so I have a little bit of experience with it. The challenge of pastoring is you cannot control people. You're a shepherd and you are to lead. And there are things that you can look at in your own people because you get to know them. And you look at them and you can say, this is what they need. But yet they can refuse to want to hear or respond, or they can even acknowledge the need of change and yet refuse a change. So you look at marriages that are bad. You see it year after year. The marriage is bad. The same dynamics that was in their marriage in the beginning, the first time they talked to you, is still there years later because they refuse to respond. They refuse to repent and to be changed. And so that's really what it comes down to be. There can be conviction, but what they do with that conviction is something deeper, whether or not it's going to be godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. People can be sad that they have a bad marriage, but that doesn't mean that they're going to change the marriage. It doesn't mean they're going to allow God to change them. They can have a belief that life is all about personal happiness, and they want to be happy, and right now their marriage isn't making them happy, so they can ask God to make them happy in essence. But that's still not the aspect of trying to be like Jesus and repenting, because we know that our life is contrary to Christ, and it is an expression of sin. And so as a pastor, the challenge is, is is you really have to preach to those who have ears to hear. There are some people in churches that no matter what you say, no matter what you preach, they're not going to hear. There's those in churches that are unsaved, and they've been unsaved for years and years. Maybe they were saved at one time, but they turned away, and they're back in the world. And so as a pastor, you really have to focus upon the hungry. You have to focus upon those who are wanting to walk with God because you can't do anything about those who don't. You can preach the truth. You call them out to repentance. But if we focus upon those who don't want to walk with God, then we will fail to disciple those who want to. And so it's the hungry. That's who Jesus dealt with predominantly. He spoke one way to the multitude who was predominantly lost. When they entered into faith and they became a disciple, he began to minister to them differently. But then he ministered more deeply to the twelve, and then he ministered deepest of all to the three. And I believe that the change in each of those had to do with the heart, the desire of wanting to really walk near to Jesus and live that life that is separated unto him. And that is really what a pastor has to do. He has to look at his sheep. He has to see who's there, who are really sheep, who's goats, who is walking with God, who's not, and to strive to lead them in the paths of righteousness to the best of his ability. Reminds me of what all the leaders did in the Bible. The prophets, they could have a divine message, but it didn't guarantee the response. Absolutely. We're talking about the real thing and the counterfeit. I mean, this set-apart life is the real thing. You know, you keep mentioning Jesus, really knowing Jesus. People have one idea— of what that means, of what God's like, of who Jesus is, but it's so often just so far from the truth. 
Well, analogies are kind of interesting. I guess one way we could look at it in the sports idea is you have the real football players out there on the field and you have the armchair athletes that can scream and shout and cuss out the people on the field, but they don't even know what it is to pick up a football. And you can have that same thing kind of in the church. You know, people can have all their opinions about religion and what the church should be like, but are they even saved? Do they even know Jesus? Do they even know what it is to serve? Do they know what it is to to lead people? Are they living a life that's even able to be in a spot that God could do something with them. So God wants us to become people that are in the midst of the battle, that are literally living out the life. And in essence, we become those that are on that playing field. We are living it out on a daily basis. We are fighting the world and hell and all those other things that we might walk right before God. The compromise is just those who want to get out of hell and not want to walk with Jesus and not want hell out of them. So a lot of people want don't want to go to hell, but they don't want to get hell out of them. They want to still practice their sin, live in the world, and in essence, they're like the armchair athletes that think they know everything, but are not in the place of real fellowship with Jesus. Paul made a statement about us failing the test, and we need to make sure that we don't fail the test, because if we fail the test, the consequences are eternal. They're not temporal. They are eternal. Yes, there will be temporal consequences, but it's the eternal ones that are the serious thing. If we fail the test when we stand before God, then things are serious because we will be forever separated from him. And Jesus has done everything that is necessary for us that we can live a life of godliness, that we can live separated unto him and know the joy of that life. And I think that's something that's so important. We have to understand there's joy in that life. It's it's beautiful when we learn how to walk with him in that fellowship and know what it is to bring joy to the heart of God. And as we bring joy to him, he definitely brings joy to us. People can hear all of this and then walk away somehow saying, yeah, that that is an amazing life. That is a wonderful, that's very noble and it's ideal, but somehow I don't have to do that. It's not required. And uh, I don't know, your thoughts? Well, it's the big problem of cheap grace. You know, it's it's preached everywhere, unfortunately, but cheap grace is not true grace. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man who just coined the phrase cheap grace and used it in some very powerful way ways in his writing. And cheap grace is just grace without a cross, grace without Christ, grace without salvation, grace without responsibility, that we have grace so we can live however we want. That's not grace. True grace is costly. It costs Christ everything to die on the cross that we could have grace, and it costs us everything for grace to be working in our lives. Grace doesn't happen with us just sitting in the armchair and being that armchair athlete doing nothing. Grace is there when we go into the midst of the battle. Grace is there to give us victory over sin. Cheap grace leaves us in our sin. Cheap grace lets us live any way we want to and not be separated unto Christ. And so cheap grace is a damnable doctrine that is being preached all the time from hosts of churches out there. And it is a doctrine that is going to cause many people to be separated from God forever. True grace delivers us from sin. When we struggle, it helps us to overcome. When we face spiritual warfare, it is there to help us to be victorious. Jesus didn't leave anything to time and chance. Everything is available for us to live the victorious Christian life. If we are defeated, 
That's because grace is not operating in us. And because we're not wanting to live truly separate on him, because we are still loving our sin and wanting to walk in that sin. I know those are strong words, um, but I also have the advantage of knowing you enough personally and knowing of your ministry enough to know the, the heart that's behind those words, and uh, and that it's also not coming just from a place of you critiquing uh, other people. You've lived this out yourself, I think I can say with assurance. Talk to us just for a moment here as we close some about your testimony and just what it's meant for you to embark on this this kind of life. Well, I guess as far as my testimony goes— It's been that journey, as what I mentioned earlier, that, you know, it began with a radical conversion. I was truly radically saved out of a life of drugs. And somewhere early in my Christian life, and I'm talking really early here, I just began to love the place of prayer and just to love being with Jesus. And I think that was really uh, the big thing that put me in the place of pursuing holiness, of really wanting to be holy, of really wanting to walk near to Jesus because I began to know the depths and heights and riches of his love, that love that passes human understanding. If it's just a law, why walk near to him? There's no joy in it. It's it's miserable. Religion is terrible. But if it's a love relationship, and not something that's make-believe, but something that is real, that you can know that love, that you can taste that love, you can experience that love, to know that love becomes a powerful motivator in wanting to know that love in a greater way and to remove everything from our life that would hinder. And so it is love that warns us. It's love that compels us to walk near to Jesus. It's love that is compelling us to be separated unto Christ. It's love that comes from him that that would bring the message to us. It's love of the preacher that would preach the truth and call us to a holy life. It's all about relationship. The entirety of Christianity is summed up in this relationship that We, through our sin, have rebelled against God, but God in his great love for us came down, took upon flesh and blood, died on the cross, took our place as our substitute that we could be forgiven because he thought we were worth redeeming because he loved us enough and wanted us to be with him forever. Those truths, I think, are just overwhelming. That God would want me, that he would want me with him forever is absolutely astounding. And... That idea, if it would get into our hearts, if we'd grab hold of it and begin to understand it, should be such a catalyst for us to pursue him and to get everything out of our life that would be contrary to him, it would be powerful. It could revolutionize the church just by the sheer act of understanding who he really is and what his love is all about. Because his love is better than life, as the psalmist said. If you'd like to learn more about the ministry of Glenn and Jessica Meldrum, visit In His Presence Ministries at their website, ihpministry.com, where you'll find all their resources, including articles, sermons, books, and audio products, as well as Glenn's weekly podcast, The Radical Truth. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music. And that wraps up things for this show. Thank you for listening today, and we hope to see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. 
Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.